6. A World of Constitutions The historical import of the European Economic Community Treaty consists in its relating the internationality of law and political institutions to the internationality of economic relations. In this sense, the EEC Treaty embodies an economic constitution. Ernst Joachim Mestmecker 1973. Europe is one of the riddles of the neoliberal century. Some scholars claim that the European Economic Community, EEC, was a neoliberal project from the start, that when West Germany, France, Italy, and the Benelux countries agreed to the Treaty of Rome in March 1957, they were actually signing Hayek's blueprints for federation from the 1930s. Others counter with the point that Hayek himself was opposed to European federation after 1945. If the EEC was a neoliberal triumph, what to make of an observer's remark in 1962 that economists of the so-called neoliberal persuasion have long criticized the efforts to establish a European economic community? Did European integration happen because of or in spite of a neoliberal vision for the continent? Resolving the paradox requires zooming both in and out. Looking closely at the moment of Europe's institutional creation, we find that the Rome Treaty split the neoliberal group into two factions. On one side was the older generation of Geneva School neoliberals who have been labeled the Universalists. On the other side was another, younger cohort of neoliberals that we can call the Constitutionalists. By drawing the lens back, we see the importance of empire and the world in the story. The Universalists opposed to the EEC, like Willem Rupke, Gottfried Habele, and Michael Heilperin, reflected a fidelity to a prior commitment to the larger scale of global integration, as defended by the League of Nations, and later the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, GATT. Especially galling was the fact that the Treaty of Rome actually created, not Europe, but a version of Eurafrica. Because preferential access to the European market was extended to the French, Dutch, and Belgian empires as associated states, 90% of the territorial area of the common market was beyond the borders of Europe itself. To the Universalists, Eurafrica looked like another means of disintegrating the world economy in the name of integration. The EEC created a clot the size of Western Europe plus larger parts of Africa in the network of free circulation of goods. It kept empire and protectionism alive in the supposed era of the liberal world economy. Universalists made concrete efforts to shore up the GATT against the EEC. In 1958, Haberle co-authored a report for GATT criticizing the emerging agricultural protectionism of the EEC and agricultural subsidies in the United States. The so-called Haberle Report became a milestone in the history of GATT and later the World Trade Organization, WTO, and won him unexpected partners in the Global South. Yet despite the Universalists' zeal, their globalism contained a fatal flaw. It had no mechanism of enforcement. The goal of diminishing economic nationalism was evident, but the leap to supranational governance was less so. By pinning their hopes on the GATT, the first-generation global neoliberals put their faith in an organization without teeth— while one faction of neoliberal globalists rejected the value of European integration, another saw it as a bridge over the gap between institutional design and implementation. In the 1960s, key neoliberals, including Hans van der Kolben, Ernst Joachim Mestmecker, and Erich Hauptmann, conceived of the Treaty of Rome as an economic constitution 
and the basis for future models of multi-level governance. Law was central to pro-Europe neoliberals, many of whom were trained as lawyers rather than economists. Even though Hayek's discussion of federation almost evaporated in his post-war work, the constitutionalists adapted his 1960s writings on constitutional design to reimagine supranational order. In an irony, the defining post-war project of Geneva School neoliberalism germinated inside the very project of European integration that the older neoliberals condemned. In shifting the scale of the economic constitution from the nation to the supranational federation, and later the world, the neoliberal constitutionalists seeded the field of international economic law that would emerge in the 1970s and helped theorize an integrated Europe as a model for global economic governance. The Universalists, Neoliberals Against Europe Immediately after 1945, neoliberals returned to their pre-war discussions about international federation. At the first meeting of the Mont Pelerin Society, MPS, in 1947, an entire day was devoted to the problem and chances of European federation. Robbins set the tone with his concern that European economic associations might prove disruptive to the unity of the Western world. Almost all of the federal ideas of the 1930s, one will recall, were based on the anchor of the Anglo-American relationship as the axial point of the Western world. Neoliberal intellectuals voiced fears that European organization might endanger the bonds of the Atlantic community. The basic problem was the patent unwillingness of nations to relinquish their own sovereignty. Writing in 1949, Haberler argued that there will be no European Union now or in our time because it was practically impossible that countries like Great Britain, France, Italy, and Belgium should agree on a common economic policy. He spoke hypothetically of the possibility of economic unification in a situation of comparatively little state interference in economic matters as it existed before 1914, but saw no practical means of realization. The United Nations system was emphatically international rather than supranational, and the jealously guarded principle of national sovereignty was at its heart. Against the continental dream of European integration, the Universalists maintained fidelity to the global vision of the League of Nations, which had envisioned an open-door policy for the world. Even though by the end of the war the consensus at the League had shifted toward policies of full employment and Keynesian expansion, the League retained the promise of salutary liberal internationalism in the minds of Geneva School neoliberals. Faithfully, however, the precondition for the League's success was always the goodwill and voluntary cooperation of the states involved. With no means to punish infractions by member states, and no means of compelling non-members to join, the liberal experiment had failed in the 1930s, and it seemed doomed again after 1945. Many neoliberals who had been socialized in the 1920s and 1930s shared Haberler's sense of disillusionment with a large-scale solution that would involve the willing surrender of sovereignty by nations that had no desire to surrender it. Especially in light of the paradoxical phenomenon whereby the supposed beacon of free enterprise, the United States, was itself calling for nations to make multi-year plans to consistently disperse Marshall Plan funds, Haberler saw no route that could lead the post-war European states away from planning. Although the beginnings of market liberalization in West Germany, founded in 1949, offered a praiseworthy template, there was no institutional fix whereby the other nations would be forced to follow the German lead. As we saw in Chapter 4, the best option for a neoliberal fix 
looked like the transnational commercial law of the Investment Code and the Bilateral Investment Treaty. Concentrating on private international law would protect what I have called the Xenos rights of investors without a need for multilateral interstate arrangements of public international law. The most vocal Eurosceptic of the 1950s was the ubiquitous Willem Rupke, who enjoyed both the ear of West German economics minister and MPS member Ludwig Erhardt and ready access to the press as a public intellectual. Rupke feared that the EEC would be an extension of the bloc solution of the European coal and steel community created in 1952, protecting the continent's products behind a shared tariff wall, sheltered from foreign competition and managed collectively by a supranational bureaucracy. He felt that the bloc version of Europe had no claim to be labeled integration. It reproduced the precise symptoms of protectionism and state control that had characterized the 1930s. What looked like integration for Europe would perpetuate disintegration at the scale of the world. Such an arrangement would turn national autarky to a continental one and repeat the old problems at a higher geographical scale. Expressing a similar sentiment, Michael Heilperin conjured up the familiar bugbear, insulation. Block Europe was a way to pursue the fundamentally illegitimate policy goal of being sheltered from the pressures of global competition. Furthermore, it made the fatal error described by Hayek in the 1930s. It made economic authorities a target as the source of perceived injustices. Much preferable, Earhart argued, was a system of order that exerted what one might call an anonymous coercion on the behavior of nation-states. As with the model of neoliberal federation proposed by Hayek and Robbins, the sphere of government intervention, on Earhart's view, must be self-limiting due to locked-in policies of free trade and free migration. The EEC's proposed leadership by a commission would offer itself as a target for both the grievances and special pleading of affected parties. Universalists defined integration not as a future vision, but as a return to a former order. Wrote Rupka, The truth is fundamental, as it is simple and incontrovertible, that the task in front of us is, in fact, a reintegration, that is, the recreation of a happier condition of European economic relations that already existed in the past and has been progressively destroyed in the storms of the world crisis since 1931. The world economy, which had been unitary until 1914, needed to be reconstituted. Any talk of integration could only be talk of a means of return to that lost golden age. The universalist understanding was consistent with the etymology of the word itself. The meaning of the Latin integratio is not the creation of a new entity, but the restoration of something lost. Heilperin made a point similar to Rupka's in 1949. He disputed the fact that integration was an American doctrine imported into Europe with the Marshall Plan. In fact, it was much more at home in Europe than in the States, with its traditional attachment to the tariff. When American policymakers urge Western Europe to integrate, they are bringing back to the Europeans something which is not a theoretical concept alone, but something which should spell to them a memory of a very prosperous past. Most early neoliberals were born around the turn of the 20th century, and were in late childhood and early adolescence during the period before the Great War. They often expressed their effective attachment to the era in elegiac terms. 
Rubka began one of his books by identifying himself as one of the generation which in its youth saw the sunset glow of that long and glorious sunny day of the Western world, which lasted from the Congress of Vienna until August 1914, and of which those who have only lived in the present Arctic night of history can have no adequate conception. World economic integration was simultaneously an ideological goal and a childhood idol, Neoliberals had been central in bringing the concept of integratio into economic discourse in the interwar period. Fritz Machlup has shown that Rubka was one of the first economists to write systematically about integration in the 1930s. After Eli Heckscher and Berto Olin, Swedish economists of the Stockholm School, introduced the word disintegration into economic discussions in the 1920s and early 1930s, Rubka began work on his 1942 book about what was lost and what needed to be restored. He first used the term disintegration in 1931 to describe the effect of the Great Depression's dissolution of the stable and organic structure of international economic relations that had emerged over a century under the name of the world economy. He and Mises both used the term in a 1938 publication of the Geneva Graduate Institute for International Studies devoted to the world crisis. The Geneva School Discourse of Integration has been explored in preceding chapters. It perceived the world economy as an interdependent totality reliant on a series of institutional arrangements that safeguarded the division in capitalism's doubled world of imperium and dominium and allowed for both competition and the international division of labor. This vision was far different from the dream of an autonomous or self-governing market that has been falsely ascribed to neoliberals. Instead, it assumed a space of trade and payments encased by universal norms and upheld by interstate cooperation. The architectural elegance and internal consistency of the neoliberal global vision made it hard to think about partial solutions or halfway houses on the road to reintegration at the world level. Yet, as Heilperin acknowledged, universalist solutions seemed to have failed by the 1950s. He gave up on pushing the International Investment Code he had authored and accepted the viability of bilateral investment treaties, which had become more effective. The scandal of the International Trade Organization, which he and other neoliberals saw as tainted by the politicized special pleading of the developing world, left only what Rupka called the modest but very useful GATT, a relatively weak organization riddled with exceptions, including agriculture and opt-out clauses. Eurosceptical neoliberals rallied around the GATT, despite its apparent weakness, as the best weapon at hand for attacking the new EEC. In its essence, GATT was the institutional heir of the liberal world economy model pioneered in Geneva, which was itself based on the 19th century principle of the Most Favored Nation Treaty that extended reciprocal relaxation of trade barriers to all signees. GATT's primary architect, James Mead, had been active at the League, authoring its World Economic Survey in the late 1930s. Rupka advocated for the GATT against French-dominated European institutions in 1958, saying that the coal-steel common market method of integrating Europe requires a supranational political order. Why not leave it to GATT, he asked, or if GATT is insufficiently effective, why not strengthen it? Erhard spoke in the name of the economy, as such, when he promoted the superiority of the GATT, saying that errors and sins against the economy are not made good by proclaiming them to be European. To Rupka, the only form of integration that might be worthy of the name, 
followed what he called the Colonel Solution. Colonel Europe would not protect its goods from the outside world. Rather, it would create a free trade zone and eventually a common payment community or currency union that would gradually expand over time, absorbing other nations into an ever-growing territory of specialization and free market competition. This form of integration may begin in Europe, but it prepares for a transition into a universal world economic integration. Against the EEC, Rupka and Erhardt advocated for a European free trade area, EFTA, to include Great Britain, Switzerland, Austria, Portugal, and the Scandinavian countries. The failure of the EFTA model to win out over the EEC concept meant, Rupka wrote in the National Review, that economic liberation had to be purchased by digging a moat against the outside. Hans van der Groben exaggerated only slightly when he wrote in hindsight that the Universalists saw every regional structure as a deviation from the path of righteousness. They painted the struggle over European integration in Manichaean terms, he said, with those calling for the EEC cast in the role of villains. Robke relied on his characteristically incendiary rhetoric, urging that the market economy not be sacrificed on the altar of Europe, and cautioning that what was meant to be mortar may prove to be dynamite. Halperin invoked the foundational modern battles of political economy from the 19th century. Buried for many decades in intellectual and political mothballs, he wrote, the free trade versus protection controversy has incredibly become once again a front-page item. Given such an alternative, universalists naturally sided with free trade, which, said Halperin in the terms of classical liberal dogma, conforms to the nature of things and to the distribution of resources and men on the globe. West Germany represented the pole of free trade under economics minister Erhardt, and the main antagonist was France. In an article in Fortune, Halperin, using a politically loaded term, denounced the French choice of segregation, which harmed the mass of French consumers, who are the big losers in France's essentially rich, shamefully hobbled economy. The first member of the hardcore of neoliberals to deviate from opposition to European economic integration was not Rupka, who remained a staunch opponent, but an employee of Erhardt's ministry, Alfred Müller-Armach. Born in 1901, Müller-Armach was a contemporary of the first generation of neoliberals. A member of the Nazi party since 1933, he held a chair in economics at the University of Münster from 1940, where he directed research on building, settlement, and textile production. Some of his wartime studies tackled the Third Reich's iteration of European integration in seeking economic solutions for the Nazi empire in Eastern Europe. Müller-Armach met Erhardt in the early 1940s, as the future economics minister and chancellor was also researching the textile industry under Hitler's government. The duo remained close after the war. Along with the Freiburg School of Walter Eucken and Franz Böhm, they helped define the foundational German neoliberal position. In 1950, Müller-Armach became a professor at the University of Cologne, and took a position as the leader of the policy department in Erhardt's economics ministry in 1952. Unlike Rupka and Haberle, whose academic purchase protected their purism, Müller-Armach's active role in politics and administration made him more aware of the need to find practicable solutions and common ground with ideological opponents. One such accomplishment was his enduring achievement in coining the term social market economy. 
The term combined free market principles with attention to welfare and labor concerns in a way that would rankle other neoliberals over time, but Muller Armach had chosen the term precisely for its mediating, ironic function. Writing about the prospects of European integration in 1957, Muller Armach took a similar pragmatic position. While genuflecting to the era before 1914 as a paragon of world economic integration, he pointed out that conditions had changed and institutions needed to adapt with them. The GATT offered one option, but its organizational sluggishness proved that complicated and organizationally demanding agreements only offer success in limited circles. Even while oriented at worldwide organizations, he argued, integration would only happen on the initiative of a tight European circle. By 1957, Muller Armagh could speak from experience. He had helped suture together opposing viewpoints within the German cabinet when he held a meeting of the principals at his summer house in May 1955. At that meeting, Erhard acquiesced to the project of European integration being spearheaded by Chancellor Konrad Adenauer and his foreign ministry. Müller, Armach, and Erhardt also managed to push the vision away from the coal and steel community model and toward one that could protect undistorted competition and prioritize the four freedoms of goods, capital, services, and labor. The concept of the competitive common market had been crafted ahead of time in the economics ministry, in part by the lawyer Wendergolben, who had led the Schumann Plan Department in the economics ministry since 1952. After a meeting of delegates of the six signatories in Messina in June 1955, the Belgian foreign minister, Paul-Henri Spock, tasked van der Wolben and Pierre Uri to draft a treaty, the so-called Spock Report, that became the basis of negotiation beginning in the spring of 1956. Van der Wolben was made the chair of the Committee on the Common Market in the negotiations, and Müller-Armach was made a member. After a year of negotiations in Paris and Brussels, the treaty was signed in Rome in March 1957 as children lined the roads waving miniature flags of the six signatory nations. Posters in the kiosks along the Roman streets showed six farm girls dancing in circles in blouses decorated with the national colors, foreshadowing the centrality of agriculture in the Europe that would follow. The treaty itself was a product of months of negotiation and compromise. Looked at from one angle, it appeared to be a neoliberal victory. The four freedoms were enshrined in the text alongside a commitment to undistorted competition. From another angle, the success was more mixed. There were no mechanisms to enforce the laws of competition regulating monopolies and cartels, and the provisions themselves bore the marks of significant compromise with the French negotiators. When the unresolved issues of agriculture were addressed through the Common Agricultural Policy, CAP, passed in 1962, it included the markedly non-neoliberal measures of politically determined prices as well as variable import levies and export subsidies for major products. Never one to soften a punch, Rupka referred to the CAP as the most grotesque system of price-fixing, subsidies, and artificial purchasing arrangements that had ever been created in a modern industrial economy. The effect of the CAP was to exacerbate the problems identified by Habela in 1958. The Treaty of Rome and the EEC that emerged from it was a hybrid artifact of compromise, and far from the clear-cut neoliberal triumph over remnants of French interventionism that some scholars claim. 
One of the greatest deviations from neoliberal principles was on the question of empire. The fourth part of the Treaty of Rome was devoted to the euphemistically titled non-European countries and territories which have special relations with Belgium, France, Italy, and the Netherlands, Article 131. Van der and Uri had not included the question of the colonies in the Spock report, but the French made their inclusion a condition of signing the treaty. As a result, the common market, as a recent study put it, constituted a territorial sphere stretching from the Baltic to the Congo. Specifically, the treaty secured tariff-free access to the market for the products of the 18 African colonies of the French, Belgian, Dutch, and Italian empires for an initial period of five years and also granted the right to infant industry protection, Article 133. Because the common market would have a common external tariff against third-party producers, this meant that the tropical products of the colonies would enjoy a significant advantage against competitors outside of the European empires, especially producers in Latin America, who traditionally enjoyed robust trade with Western Europe and especially West Germany. Empire was no footnote to Müller-Armach. He devoted an entire chapter of his memoirs to the matter of the associated territories. He recounted that the French and Belgian negotiators sprang association as a surprise condition for ratification on the final day of negotiations, which pushed the negotiation of tariffs for individual products late into the night. Muller Amach zeroed in on the question of bananas at the turbulent night session, offering resistance to the very last to the proposal that bananas from outside of the common market be burdened with a 20% tariff, itself an artifact of the Italian protection of their colonial Somali banana crop. Adenauer reportedly sided with Muller Armach, delaying the completion of the negotiations in protest over the issue. Even after the negotiations technically were concluded, Muller Armach won the chance to draft a last protocol with Robert Margellin to be included as an annex in the final version. Completed between the final negotiations in Paris and the treaty signing in Rome, the so-called Banana Protocol created a crack in the tariff wall of the common market by securing renewable access for West Germany to duty-free bananas from beyond the protected African producers of the European empires and the French overseas territories in the Caribbean. Bananas became an ideological battle for Muller Amak. The whole thing might seem funny from the outside, he wrote, but we wanted to emphasize our conviction in an economic policy that did not enact serious discrimination against all other banana-exporting developing countries. Neoliberal fears of block thinking seemed most realized in the colonies. Rupka observed in 1958 that it was absurd that, to the greater glory of the common market, coffee and bananas entering from Brazil, Guatemala, and Costa Rica should be made more expensive by protective tariffs. One cannot blame such countries treated with such discrimination, he wrote, for seeking to protect themselves by appeals to GAD. Muller Armach himself argued that excluded nations had every right to appeal to the GAD against the conditions of the Rome Treaty. The Universalists fastened onto agriculture and Eurafrica to attack European integration at the GAD. Far from trivial, the question of bananas, coffee, and cocoa opened decades of struggle for Geneva School neoliberals against what they saw as the persistence of empire in the liberal world trading system. The famous banana wars of the early 21st century began with a fight over the Treaty of Rome. The issue was the same. 
Had empire been displaced by the liberal world economy, or should colonial history still shape global economic relations? GATT versus Eurafrica, the 1958 Havila Report. The extra-European context for the creation of Europe is often overlooked. By Wendel Goulbin's own account, France's embroilment in anti-colonial conflict in Algeria predisposed it to be more acquiescent to West German pressure to diverge from more state-centered approaches of planification. Adenauer's staunch support for the military intervention of the old imperial powers of France and Britain during the Suez Crisis of 1956 also won him favor with the French. Muller-Armach, who saw the Suez intervention as political insanity, nonetheless acknowledged that the moment of French-German rapprochement and a shared moment of European defensiveness against U.S. geopolitical power helped move negotiations through a critical phase. A French observer quipped later that a statue should be raised to Egyptian leader Gamal Abdel Nasser as the Federator of Europe for nationalizing the canal and creating the conditions for the largest Western European powers to bond. For Rupka, the Suez Crisis offered a chance to reflect on the difference between the old world and the new. The Suez Canal had not been an unresolved problem of the world economy in the 19th century, he observed. Its stability was ensured by a treaty in international law, underwritten by the convictions and principles of the civilized world, protected by the supremacy of Great Britain. International organizations were only imperfect substitutes after the undisputed trustee position of imperial powers had been undermined. It would correspond to the new principles of international order, he wrote wryly, if an international Suez Canal Authority were to be constituted. But how is this supposed to happen? Who will oppose the volcanic force of freshly erupting nationalism? The United States was an unreliable partner. Rupker criticized it for having fallen into the arms of a completely irresponsible oriental despot during the Suez Crisis. Although, as noted in the conclusion of Chapter 5, Rupka had combined his liberalism with anti-imperialism in the 1930s, he betrayed nostalgia for empire in an era of multilateralism and diffused authority. Rupka's plaintive tone suggests the impotence felt by universalists in the late 1950s. They were flanked by what they saw as protectionist European integration on one side of the Atlantic, an untrustworthy guardian of the world economic order on the other, and a UN steadily filling with southern nations that were breaking the rules of the 19th century with their demands for sovereignty over national resources and global redistribution. As we saw in Chapter 4, neoliberals interpreted the Suez Crisis and other nationalizations as signs of a loss of the all-important division between the imperium of government and the dominium of private ownership. It was not clear to neoliberals which institutional replacements for empire were worthy of their loyalty. In the case of Europe, the most concerted stand was taken by Gottfried Haberler through the organization of the GATT. As already suggested in the case of muller armach the association of the African states with the EEC was a special target of neoliberal critique. It collectivized the features and obligations of French colonialism by extending preferential access for agricultural imports and by co-financing a European development fund. To Earhart, the commitment to Euro-Africa simply Europeanized the costs of empire and threatened to recreate protectionist blocks that were of little use to West Germany, which purchased only a fraction of its imports from colonial West and Central Africa. 
After being forced to accept the reconstruction of agricultural tariff walls around the borders of the six nations signatory to the treaty, neoliberals now had to swallow the extension of those walls southward to the other side of the Mediterranean and far into Africa. Although little known today, the concept of Eurafrica circulated widely in the years before formal decolonization swept across Africa in the 1960s. It had different meanings for different populations. In France, visions of Eurafrique were about retaining and deepening, but also perhaps transforming, empire. Senegalese deputy Leopold Senghor supported Eurafrique, along with other delegates from deputies in the Indépendant d'Outre-mer bloc in the National Assembly. For them, it seemed a way to retain a means for voicing demands as entitlements from France vertically, even as they created connections to other Africans horizontally. Sangor also felt it could be a route to extending social democracy to Africa in a new spirit of cultural reciprocity. During the EEC negotiations, Ivory Coast leader Félix oufouet Boigny came to Brussels to appeal to the national delegates to approve association for the African colonies. In Muller Amok's recollection, it was largely the power of his persuasive defense that helped secure approval for financial aid to the French colonies as part of the Treaty of Rome. French Prime Minister Guy Mollet's perspective on Eurafrique, by contrast, was paternalistic. In 1957, he said that all of Europe will be called upon to help in the development of Africa. Mollet's formulation recalled that of the father of the pan-European movement, Richard Kudenhofer Kalergi, who had coined the term Eurafrique in 1929, proposing that the common project of creating arable land and curing disease in Africa would bring European powers together. This angle on Eurafrique more clearly echoed the sentiment of the Berlin Conference of 1884-1885, when the European colonies expressed their unity in the common project of suppressing slavery and bringing free trade to Africa in what Carl Schmidt calls the last common land appropriation of non-European soil by the European powers. Understood in this sense, Eurafrica actually exaggerated the gap between the two continents, even as it combined them in a single term. The process of the project's realization suggested the continuing asymmetry in the balance of power. Despite Senghor's demand that Eurafrique cannot be created without the consent of Africans, the presence of oufouet Boigny was the exception that proved the rule. The Treaty of Rome negotiations and debate in the French National Assembly about the treaty in 1957 happened otherwise without the presence or participation of African delegates. For the Germans, Eurafrika was bound up with the geopolitical thinking of the Nazi era in its ideas of territorial zero-sum economic space. In the Federal Republic, Eurafrika was usually seen as a means for the French to sustain their colonial empire. As Ferdinand Fried, a conservative colonist and former Nazi mouthpiece, put it in 1960, the vision of Eurafrika rises on the horizon, and the French have elegantly kept their old colonial legacy alive in a new era. In the popular imagination, Eurafrika was pushed on Germany as part of the European package, a compromise accepted for the sake of integration and under pressure from the United States. Along with the Dutch who shared their opinions, the German liberal leaders, above all Erhard, continued to hope that Eurafrica would act as a transition to an open-world economy. To this end, they pushed for clauses limiting the length of aid and locking in dates for the transition to market prices for African exports. 
dates that ended up being pushed ever farther into the future as the years passed. For its part, the Eisenhower administration accepted Your Africa as a convenient means to continue to promise decolonization without taking concrete steps toward it. Despite its professed liberalism, the United States placed highest priority on an agreement between the French and West Germans, regardless of the shape it took, and was even willing to tolerate agricultural protectionism if necessary. The protection of agriculture in Europe remained into the 1990s the most important departure from the largely market-oriented economic and trade policies of Europe, putting farmers on welfare, as one monograph has it. Ironically, the first significant policy victory of the ostensibly free trade and anti-colonial post-war U.S. order was a protected economic space in the exact shape of the European empires. The example of agriculture shows that the right of the hegemon is the right to break the rules. Just as the U.S. subsidized its agriculture while preaching free trade, the CAP created a protectionist Europe even as it began pressuring the EEC's associated states to transition their exports to world market prices. Jimé Momarguea, the Senegalese ambassador to Brussels, pointed out the hypocrisy in the EEC pressuring the associated states to liberalize their production in the name of economic liberalism, even as they protect their own agricultural production in broad daylight. Free trade talk worked to cement the customs union among the six signatory nations, but in the case of agriculture, liberal principles stopped at the borders of the EEC, that is, on the southern tip of Madagascar. The conflict between Europe, Eurafrica, and the world economy was about the universality of the laws of economic organization. Defending Eurafrica in 1961, the president of the European Commission, Walter Holstein, argued for both the importance of history and the fundamental difference of Africa. He said first that it would not make sense to ignore the remaining ties from the colonial period for the sake of a cosmopolitan, indiscriminate, humanitarian, and unfocused policy. Not only did obligations exist, but Western laws had no bearing. He used a metaphor from physics, saying that, in our relationship to the developing countries, we are entering, so to speak, a new space, which has its own dimensions, and in which our Euclidean geometry is no longer entirely applicable. The rebuttal of the Eurosceptic neoliberals consisted in claiming that, in fact, the same laws did apply, and the modern era required equality in the form of the economically self-determining nation-state. The West German Economics Ministry under Erhard wrote in 1961 that the new states in Africa must achieve true independence economically as well. Against the particularity of the EEC, the neoliberals held up the universal community of the GATT. In the late 1950s, neoliberals found partners for their critique of European integration in the unlikely place of the Global South. From the beginning, it was actors from Asia, Latin America, and the non-associated states of Africa who were most openly critical of the EEC. The forum they used to express their criticism was GATT. It was at the Geneva-based organization that the so-called outsider states of the developing countries drafted a probing list of 132 questions to be circulated to the EEC countries about the nature of the new economic policy. At the radical end of the spectrum, at the first Afro-Asian Solidarity Conference held at the end of 1957 in Cairo, the European Common Market was said to make colonies the property of six European countries and strangled the aspirations of the people for independence from colonial domination. 
more moderately, your Africa, was criticized by the Latin American economists at the United Nations Economic Commission for Latin America, ECLA, and by the government of India. Their complaint was that even if the EEC's regional arrangement was in line with the letter of GATT law, the protectionism in the Treaty of Rome contradicted its liberal spirit. With the United States unwilling to provoke the Franco-German alliance, which became even more tenuous with Charles de Gaulle's staunch opposition to British membership in the EEC, and also unwilling to shine a spotlight on its own comprehensive practices of agricultural subsidies, the aggrieved nations of the developing world found tactical allies in Austrian and German neoliberals. Protests from developing countries about Year Africa in 1957 crystallized a wider concern about the worldwide decline in commodity prices after the end of the Korean War. A review session held in 1954 prompted the Executive Secretary of GATT to convene a committee in November 1957 led by Habele to investigate. The Habele report is routinely recognized as a major turning point in the history of both the GATT and now the WTO. According to the Secretary in his charge to Habele in January 1958, the report should address three concerns, all related to developing countries. First, the susceptibility of less developed countries to fluctuations of commodity prices on the world market. Second, the disparity in growth of international trade between more and less developed countries. And thirdly, perhaps the biggest problem of all, the persistence of agricultural protectionism in developed countries. Though the intention of the study was to address the concerns of developing countries, only the policies of industrialized countries would be open for criticism. The choice of Habele to lead the team was not surprising. At Harvard University since the 1930s, he was a leading expert in international trade, as well as chairman of the National Bureau of Economic Research, NBER. The four-person team eventually expanded. New members include two other experts and active league economists, Mead, an architect of GATT, who had also played a key role in formulating Britain's post-war full employment policies, and the Dutch econometrician, Jan Tinderhen, who created the first macroeconomic statistical model of a national economy while at the League. They were joined by Roberto Campos, a Brazilian economist who had been one of his nation's delegates at Bretton Woods and the head of the Brazilian Development Bank, whose U.S.-friendly policies had earned him the nickname Bob Fields. Another former League economist, Hans Stela, had helped assemble the group. An econometrician by specialization, Stela was a director of economic research at the League, drafting reports for the International Labor Organization, ILO, in Geneva in the 1930s, and also consulted with Tinderhen on his first League volume on international trade. Working for the GAD in the 1950s, Stela corresponded with Habela about the composition of the team. They shared a perspective on how the committee should look. Habela expressed relief, for example, that Campos had been chosen instead of Raúl Prebisch of the ECLA, who was an advocate of liberalizing agricultural trade, but also a strong advocate of industrial protection. Habela went so far as to suggest Peter T. Bauer, a fellow MPS member, was the most strident critic of both third world industrialization and foreign aid. Likely recognizing that this went too far, he then offered Meade as a compromise candidate. Habeler had no intention for his report to be used as reinforcement for projects to achieve economic evenness. He said explicitly that he was unhappy with a reference to the further increase in the income gap 
in the report's summary and further criticized the concept of a desirable rate of development. He wrote that it surely cannot be said so bluntly, but that underdeveloped countries are in the habit of blaming foreign trade and the developing countries for their own policies. He also added that some other members of the committee will not agree, thinking here likely of Tinberhen and Mead, both of whom held views close to the Keynesian principles opposed by Haberler, who remained a staunch defendant of stability over both growth and full employment. In his writings from the 1930s to the 1980s, Haberler insisted that the open world economy was important as a means of disciplining potentially inflationary social spending and rash projects of industrialization, and the potential problems of the developing nations were never far from his mind. In the 1990s, Paul Samuelson remembered Haberler as a minority voice for his advocacy of market disciplines rather than import substitution and state-driven development in the 1950s and 1960s. Published in October 1958, the Haberler Report could have been written in Geneva 25 years earlier. Far from arguing that liberalization hindered development, it concluded that liberalization had not gone far enough. The specific targets of criticism were the industrialized countries. The EEC, which formally came into existence only months earlier, on January 1, 1958, was singled out for extending agricultural protectionism to the associated territories, which would give rise to discrimination against other overseas countries in Africa and elsewhere. Along with its criticism of the just-launched EEC, the report also assailed agricultural subsidies, which were especially widespread in the United States, leading to pointed rebuttals to the report from the U.S. Federal Reserve and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Europe, above all, was cast as a test case. If the EEC were to grow into an instrument for trade diversion and for increased protectionism against outside agriculture or other products, the report's authors warned, it might be the signal for a growth of undesirable discriminatory arrangements of a trade-diverting and protective character. Developing countries were already of the opinion that the rules and conventions which are at present applied to commercial policy and international trade show a lack of balance unfavorable to their interests. Institutionalizing your Africa would send a message that the rules were there to be broken. The executive secretary of the GATT, E. Wyndham White, told Haberler that the report had met with great success and had a decisive effect on our discussions here in the GATT. Very rarely, Gatt's European office wrote, had a report by economists been so warmly received and widely acclaimed. Talking about the very considerable coverage in the British press, Stela called it an enormous hit. The report was an especially large hit with a group that Haberler hoped to discipline, the developing countries. In May 1959, 15 African, Asian, Caribbean, and Latin American nations including leaders in the non-aligned movement, Burma, Ghana, Malaya, India, and Indonesia, submitted a note on the expansion of international trade. In their interpretation, the Haberler Report had concluded that there was a tendency of the export trade of the less developed countries to expand less rapidly than the trade of the highly industrialized countries, meaning that special measures to assist the trade of less developed countries both in the field of primary products and manufactured goods had to be taken very early. Ghana and Indonesia, along with Brazil and the United Kingdom, used the Habila Report against the Eurafrican model of preference. In the 1990s, 
the WTO would cut its teeth on precisely this issue as the United States brought cases against the Lomé Agreement, a descendant of the original economic Eurafrica concept. The case is read in popular imagination as an example of particular U.S. corporate interests being hidden in the universalist language of the free market. It would present a major challenge to the Geneva School model of neoliberalism in the 2000s. Thus, it is all the more striking to see early post-colonial nations like Ghana, Indonesia, and India using the precise language of free trade with the Haberle Report as a lever, quoting it to the effect that the EEC's preferential trade arrangements will be trade-diverting rather than trade-creating. Against the frequently circulated cliché that third-world demands equal the protectionist demands for tariffs, these developing nations were, in fact, using the Haberle Report to oppose protectionism and call for freer trade. Their list of serious obstacles included all the bugbears of the free trader, protective quotas, subsidies and price support schemes, and quantitative restrictions. In other words, they were not asking for the right to opt out of the free world economy through barriers to protect infant industry. Instead, they were requesting that the GATT, and by extension the industrialized world, live up to its own principles of free trade. Giuliano Garavini cites French complaints in the 1960s that the delegates from underdeveloped countries had been seduced by liberal doctrine. The demand for development and the critique of both Europe and Eurafrica was being made in the language of the open world economy. Scholars often use overly broad characterizations of global South countries as adherence to the ideology of dependency theory, which supposedly privileged the protection of infant industry above all else to diversify the economy. In that narration, the exceptions are those countries with especially close ties to the United States, Japan, Taiwan, and South Korea, whose export-oriented industrialization models are usually seen as prefiguring the direction in which development would go once the Third World snapped out of its dependency theory-driven delusions. Looking at the response to the Haberle Report, one sees that the truth is less black and white. In fact, developing countries were advocates of both protection and liberalization at the same time. They followed a policy of both and rather than either or. It was not a protectionist imaginary against a free trade imaginary with the developing world as atavistic advocates of the failed 1930s world. Rather, weaker nations used all policy tools available to them, including GATT. In the case of the Haberle Report, developing nations used the master's tools against him by suggesting that Europe and the United States adhere to their own much-preached liberal principles. The Haberle Report shows that the rise and spread of neoliberal ideas can be understood only through its piecemeal adoption by Global South nations as a development strategy.